Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological. So we have better get methodical. Bring in precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. As you'll know, if you listen to this podcast regularly, or if you happen to read TechDirt, uh, we end up talking an awful lot about questions around content moderation and trust and safety and the various policies that impact those things. Uh, one of the complaints that I often make about the media and some of the uh, political and policy discussions around them is that they all seem to think that these are only questions that apply to large social media services like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Twitter. Uh, however, as we've pointed out, there are lots of other services out there, small, medium, and large, and all of them deal with trust and safety questions pretty much all the time. Uh, but even then, we often default into thinking about these in terms of them being centralized services. And almost all of our discussions about these services how they handle moderation and what sort of regulatory changes might impact them uh, are pretty much focused on just centralized services. And I'm certainly guilty of this myself. Most of the discussions we have are, are focused on those centralized services. However, these days we're starting to see legitimate decentralized services that are being built and actually having somewhat growing user bases. Uh, Mastodon has certainly received the most attention, and it's actually a part of a wider project, which hopefully you know about, which is just based on the ActivityPub protocol. And there are multiple other services uh, built on that protocol as well, um, including some other microblogging social media services that interoperate with Mastodon. And then you have things for images like PixelFed, which is sort of an Instagram-like service on ActivityPub, and the uh, suddenly very relevant Reddit-like services uh, such as Lemmy and Capin. Uh, and then there are other services that are not based on ActivityPub. For example, there is now Blue Sky, which is based on the brand new AT protocol. Uh, which has also received a lot of attention in the last few months. And this started out as a project uh, that Twitter kicked off uh, a few years ago, in some small part, potentially a little bit inspired by the Protocols Not Platform paper that I wrote in 2019, uh, but which is now entirely independent from Twitter and gaining more and more users and certainly plenty of attention. Um, and uh, just to throw them out there, there are a number of other decentralized social media projects such as Noster and Farcaster and a whole bunch of others that aren't even worth naming at this point in time. Now, each of these systems has some potentially important differences in how they're architected, but each presents some interesting trust and safety challenges as well. And I should note that there were many people who seemed to read the protocol's paper uh, and seem to interpret it as saying that if you set up a protocol, you no longer have to worry at all about trust and safety or content moderation. And I will say, as the author of that paper, that nothing is further from the truth. Those issues are still very much there. And my main argument was simply that in a decentralized world, 
the incentives are very different and the structure of how you deal with certain things are very different. And it could, in theory, and I stress that, uh, create a better overall structure for handling some of those challenges. Now that some of these platforms have gone from theory to reality, some people are finally starting to study these issues much more closely, including Yoel Roth, who was the former head of trust and safety at Twitter and who is currently a tech policy fellow at Berkeley, where he's been studying decentralized trust and safety questions. So, Yoel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, just to start, can you describe why decentralized social media, trust and safety is a different kind of challenge than a centralized system? I mean, let's start with the fact that decentralized platforms have to essentially start from scratch with inventing moderation practices that at some of the bigger services have been in place for upwards of 15 years now. But but let's not start with the negative. Let's maybe focus on, <laughs> on what the promise here of, of federation is. Federated platforms are promising people more control and more agency. The basic theory of a federated system is that in place of a benevolent dictator, like, say, me in my role at Twitter, you instead have communities that are closer to a model of self-governance. You have people who operate their own servers, who are sovereign over their data, and who can create rules that are perhaps better aligned with the norms and expectations of the communities that are in place on their services. All of which is great. Like The promise of giving people more agency and control is hardly ever a bad thing. But there's some interesting externalities that go along with that too. One of them, as I said, is needing to rebuild the technology. But second, and I think we're starting to see this in practice, content moderation is really hard and really expensive to do consistently. Platforms with tons of money, like Facebook, have invested years and years in trying to do this well, and they still suck at it. And so you end up in a situation where a lot of emergent services realize very quickly that they need to do something to keep their users safe and happy, and the doing something turns out to be enormously expensive and complicated. And so... Well, I, I guess why is it why is it so complicated and why is it so expensive? I mean, I have lots of ideas, but you're you're even more of an expert than I am. So, so what what makes it so expensive? So let's sort of break down content moderation and trust and safety into a couple of categories. The framework that I usually use is policy, reporting, enforcement, and then transparency and recourse. And a well-governed system has robust capabilities in each of these categories. In the policy category, it starts with what your rules are. And this isn't just sort of moderation by vibes, like get rid of the bad people. <laughs> it needs to be a set of policies that are well-researched, well-developed, and then critically written down. The bigger a service gets, the more that people are going to look to its operators and its moderators to have you know, an actual playbook that you can refer back to and evaluate things against. And producing that is really hard. You have to write a set of policies that anticipate and can accommodate all sorts of emergent behavior. That's why if you look at Facebook's policies, they are enormously complicated. 
I actually this morning was looking at Facebook's policies on nudity and adult sexual content. And if you have ever wanted to take a trip down a particularly crazy corner of internet policy, <laughs> look at how Facebook talks about appropriate versus inappropriate nipples or what gyration <laughs> specifically crosses the line of their adult sexual policy. The point is policy work is really hard and that's just the first step of the process. The second is building effective capabilities for your users to tell you if there's a problem and for you to do something about their reports to you. This is an expensive, challenging issue to scale. At Twitter, we would see hundreds of thousands of reports per week, which very quickly turned into an almost insurmountable backlog of content waiting to be reviewed. And there's different ways that you can implement this. You can do it more or less efficiently. Maybe you throw some machine learning magic at the problem, but you need to build technology that lets people tell you if something is wrong and that also ideally helps you identify it before people tell you that they've encountered a problem, this notion of proactivity. But we're still just at the very beginning of the journey. Then you get to enforcement. This is you as the operator of a platform needing to do something to put those rules into practice. If you look at a platform like Twitter or like Facebook or Instagram, they have dozens of different capabilities at their disposal to enforce their rules, from banning accounts to deleting posts to appending fact check labels to anti-spam challenges to using machine learning to figure out if somebody is evading a previous ban. Every one of those technologies requires significant investment to build. And then finally, at the end of this journey, we have all of these questions about how do you build trust in these systems through transparency and through giving people recourse whenever a platform makes a decision. Let's say a moderator makes a call and they blew it and they're wrong. You want to give them some way to appeal that decision which, by the way, is putting more reports in line to be reviewed in this ever-growing pile of things to look at. And then finally, maybe you've read the Digital Services Act and you think, hi, oh, I probably should comply with this. And then you start thinking about how you provide transparency or access to data for researchers, things that are now required by law under the DSA, and you're on the hook for doing that. All of which is really just scratching the surface of the absolute basics of trust and safety work. And federated platforms have to do every bit of this along with all of the other really hard technical bits of running a social networking service, it's hard and it's expensive. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the, the challenges associated with that is that, you know, while these things are expensive and hard and, and difficult, at least with a centralized platform, uh, you know, you can, you, you get the efficiencies of, of centralizing it. Whereas with a lot of them for the decentralized ones, one of the issues is that you're effectively having to build this, you know, build some of that infrastructure separately uh, for each instance, uh, which creates a whole bunch of other questions. And, and obviously I think there, there are tremendous benefits to having decentralized systems and federated systems, but I recognize, you know, the idea of, having to effectively replicate many of these things across each of these different uh, you know different federated servers creates some some real inefficiencies as well yeah I mean let's take perhaps one of the most straightforward problems in technology spam spammers are fundamentally adversarial 
they're going to go wherever they think the likelihood of success exceeds the likelihood of detection. And so if you're running a Mastodon instance, you probably expect that some spammers will show up. And from your perspective, maybe you can find them, maybe you ban them, which by the way, takes time and is expensive. But what are they going to do when you ban them? They're not going to give up. They're going to go to the instance next door and continue trying to bother all of the different people using the service collectively. One of the inefficiencies, as you said, of, of federation is that it lacks any type of centralized institution for dealing with these kinds of collective security challenges. When you have a problem that impacts not just one user or one server, but all of the tens of thousands of instances of a federated platform, it's not a great solution for each of those instances to have to reinvent the wheel. There's some interesting resilience to this that we've seen Mastodon in particular and the Fediverse generally come up with. This idea of shared block lists and the ability to exchange threat information. But even those capabilities are pretty new and, and pretty underdeveloped in a way where a lot of instance operators have to, if spam shows up, they have to jump into a Discord server and try to figure out in real time what to do in a way that is just harder given the nature of decentralization. And, and you know, it's funny, not funny, but but some of this is by design, right? I mean, part of the idea behind federated systems is this idea that, you know, if you, you know, if, if, if one server is not right for you, that you can go to a different one. Now, that's meant for for a different setup, not for spammers, but spammers get to use that just as well as anyone else. And it's it's one of these things that we see throughout, you know, the the different challenges that are created with federated systems are that, you know, it's not that the people designing these didn't think of these issues, but they're sort of, you know, they're working towards a different model in terms of, you know, who they're trying to benefit. And that just happens to allow for, for some more nefarious actors to take advantage of that as well. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about here is really threat modeling. Any platform you're building or, or really any technology is going to be the product of whatever its creators think is going to be the biggest risk or threat from their perspective to their community and to the technology. If you look at a lot of the, you know, let's call them web 2.0 platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, a lot of those platforms were built thinking of harmful conduct as being the worst thing that could happen. They architected their moderation capabilities to put central power in the hands of the platform so that they could deal with abusive users or spammers or any other type of issue that might emerge. And what we're starting to see come up with federated platforms is a totally different threat model that reimagines the benevolent dictator of a central moderator as being the threat you have to deal with. <laughs> if you look at something like Mastodon, or I think more interestingly at a platform like Blue Sky, the instance moderator is both empowered and also fundamentally distrusted. Blue Sky is really constructed on a model where your information, your identity, is fully portable across instances. That was one of the design choices that Blue Sky prioritized. And why, why is that important? It's important because if you believe that your instance operator or moderator is making bad decisions, you can just totally pick up your stuff and move it elsewhere without any real costs connected to that. That's a powerful design decision, but it has significant trade-offs. And one of those is decreasing the ability to effectively do moderation at scale.
Right. And, you know, uh, uh, and again, like I, it also creates some, some interesting advantages for certain users, which is why these decisions are made. I mean, one of the interesting things to me in all of these discussions is that, you know, I think uh, some people look at it and say, uh, you know, that's obviously bad because you're now enabling, you know, bad actors to have effectively more power to to exist on these platforms. But the people who are designing these platforms will will say, as as you noted, like, no, well, we're more interested or we're prioritizing threats of centralized uh, you know, moderation. And, and it, it even goes beyond that because some will argue that, you know, one of the risks associated or one of the trade-offs that you're dealing with when you're, when you're dealing with centralized moderation is that also if your threat model includes potentially government actors or others, the ability for them to go to a central provider and put pressure on them, whether it's, you know, just straight up legal pressure or, people showing up with guns uh, type of pressure, uh, you know, is, is a, a type of threat model for some users uh, that, that is, um, you know, that, that there's less that can be done or that they have, uh, you know, less power to, to deal with uh, or to, to silence people within a, a federated model. And so, you know, a lot of this does come down to the question of, you know, what is the threat model of, the users of these platforms in terms of which things are they most worried about or which things are they most concerned about and you know, which, which model works better for them. Is, is that sort of your take on it as well? I think an underlying assumption there is that users have a clear sense of how these (laughs) trade-offs work or or why you have to make them. I mean, None of these decisions are straightforward and all of them are really easy to armchair quarterback. I mean, you you hinted at the question of government takedown requests. I would say that was one of the things that Twitter really deeply worried about and built into not only its moderation processes, but the whole structure of the company and where employees were located. Twitter architected itself as a company to be resilient to certain types of pressure from governments to censor content. And you can see how other platforms look at that same risk and evaluate it in very different ways. You look at TikTok, maybe they're an easy punching bag here, but you see that (laughs) they have a a stance of generally acquiescing more readily to local requests to remove or censor content. Another interesting example is Cloudflare. Um, Cloudflare have sort of notably been at the center of a lot of really thorny content moderation questions and have written very thoughtfully about what their approach to governance is. And they talk about a taxonomy where the closer you are to being in, and they call it the content business, the more that you should be exercising content moderation capabilities. And the more of an infrastructure provider you are, like, say, Cloudflare, the less of that type of moderation you should be doing. And so Cloudflare write about their experience um, taking a number of notable content moderation actions, like kicking off neo-Nazi website, The Daily Stormer, or kicking off Kiwi Farms. And they say, look, we did this because we found these websites reprehensible, but we didn't like doing it, and we don't want to do it, and we hope we don't have to do it again in the future. And what they wave at as a solution here is regulation. They say, look, we we want good regulation. We want it to be created with due process. We want to make sure it's coming from democratic governments. 
But they say, look, we don't want to make these decisions. We think others and specifically regulators should be making these choices for us. And that's a specific type of threat model that is then built into how they operate. And I mention all of this because one of the challenges is people don't really know what these trade-offs are or what they gain or lose in different situations. In writing about their approach, Cloudflare note that the second that they deployed what the public was asking for, which was that they give the daily stormer the boot, they immediately received a bunch of emails from let's say authoritarian governments asking them <laughs> to give the boot to human rights organizations. And those right. authoritarian governments cited Cloudflare's own language and justifications as the reason for doing so. There's always going to be a trade-off, no matter what decision you make. And the business of trust and safety is figuring out which balance you want to strike, recognizing there is no universally right answer. Yeah. And, you know, I thought the the Cloudflare incident was actually really interesting in that it felt like, you know, there were like six people in the world, all of whom were kind of deep in the trust and safety uh, ecosystem, who thought that what Cloudflare wrote was thoughtful and, and, and sort of, you know, carefully nuanced. And then there were millions of people who were just furious at Cloudflare and saying, what is, what is all this, you know, theoretical nonsense, just stop the bad people from doing the bad stuff, which, you know, to some extent, you know, we see that, that kind of thinking shows up in a lot of the, the trust and safety discussions, which is, which is challenging. Um, but, but to, to take that, the, the Cloudflare example and discussion a little further, you know, I did think, I did think that their stance was interesting in the sense that like, I do think that there are different challenges if you are further away from the edge, if you are deeper in the infrastructure layer, you know, the, the questions and the challenges and the trade-offs are different. They again, don't go away because these never go away. But the interesting thing to me about the decentralized systems is effectively, I think, implicitly, whether they realize it or not, they're they're sort of trying to get to that same sort of thing, where in many ways, they're separating out the, the edge and the service versus the infrastructure, which is the protocol. The lines blur, obviously. Uh, but I think like if you look at the way Blue Sky, the Blue Sky folks talk about things and the way they've set it up, they sort of view the protocol as infrastructure in which there should be a lot less that happens there and they and the service the blue sky service which they hope eventually will not be the only service on at protocol uh you know that could be much more proactive in terms of of trust and safety is that a fair fair statement as well broadly i think that's right um Blue Sky are especially interesting in this regard because of some of the design decisions that they've made as a service that are notably different from even other federated and decentralized services like Noster or Mastodon. Blue Sky was designed to enable a certain type of global discovery across the service. This idea that there should be an easy way to find any user regardless of what instance they're on or to easily aggregate engagement metrics across instances. This is something that Mastodon, for example, is very bad at. If you look at engagement mm -hmm. metrics on Mastodon, they are um, 
chaotic in terms of how they show up. <laughs> um, right. But Blue Sky was designed to enable this kind of global discovery. And in the process, it enables a certain type of centralized global moderation. And so when you when you look at what Blue Sky have said about moderation, they've said, look, we don't want to be in the business of moderating sort of most types of content at the central level. We're going to reserve that only for the really egregiously bad stuff. And the example that obviously comes to mind here is CSAM, child sexual abuse media. Right. And so they're like, well, look, we have this ability to delete this content from existence on any AT Proto service. We are going to use that for stuff like CSAM, which sounds great, but where's the line? Is it just CSAM or is it CSAM and the promotion of terrorism? Well, right. terrorism sounds really bad, but then you're like, okay, who counts as a terrorist? That's a classic content moderation dilemma. Okay, terrorism, let's say they, that that one's over the line. They'll get rid of it centrally too. Good luck. Then you move into something like spam. Is spam <laughs> bad enough that you should deal with it centrally? I would argue yes, and you should because you have all sorts of efficiencies. But, you know, it's just, it's spam. Is it worth deploying this like incredibly <laughs> aggressive moderation capability to just deal with some spam? You can have that debate. What about more content related things like hateful conduct? What about something like transphobia or racism? These are things that clearly are bad and not just bad, they're dangerous. They have a demonstrated capability to inspire and incite violence. But is that something that Blue Sky is going to be willing to deploy this sledgehammer of centralized moderation to deal with? I don't know. But that's the question, right? The battlefield here, once you've created a central moderation capability, is when are you going to do it? And how will the pressure from your community to deploy this capability be something that you either accept or are resilient to? Yeah. And it's, and, and, just to follow up on that, it's not even just the power, the pressure from your community, which is, you know, can be very, very loud and very, very vocal. But I'll go back to pressure from governments as well. Like basically, once that tool is there, and as you noted with Cloudflare, once you show a willingness to use it, the pressure from all sides, often in ways that might be conflicting, uh, you know, starts starts to come down on you. And so that that's where things I think begin to get really really tricky, and I'm not sure that there are, there are easy answers for for any of those. I mean, that is sort of like the 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 grand summary of all of the trust and safety stuff is like there are no easy answers for yeah. for most of this. Um, I mean, it's, but uh, oh, no, it's it's also like I think there is promise in creating structure that moves a lot of these decisions to be more local. Um, and I think the possibility of having governance that happens not centrally on behalf of billions of people, but in a more distributed way is inherently promising. But what's missing right now is a collective understanding of where that line is being drawn. I'm, I'm one of the six people who really liked what Cloudflare <laughs> said, not because I think it arrived at, at any solid answers, but because it exposed in all of the gory detail how these decisions get made and just how hard they are and what the different equities and trade-offs here are, I think the people operating, whether it's Blue Sky or a Mastodon instance, they owe it to their community to expose how these decisions are getting made and at minimum to be very clear about where they plan to draw this line. 
if the premise of something like Blue Sky or Mastodon is pick your own instance, pick your own governance, it's the concept of an informed voter. Like you, you can't pick yeah. your own governance if you don't know what the terms of the governance are. And right now, a lot of the policy setting across the Fediverse, Blue Sky, Mastodon, you name it, is moderation by vibes. It's it's pretty <laughs> hand wavy at best. Yeah, no, and I think I think that's exactly right. And I think that 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 I mean, a lot of people assume that this stuff is really really easy, and yet. You know, as soon as you start to think about it, you realize all of these different complexities and trade-offs that we're discussing here, and it is important to to be open about them and and to you know to to sort of lay out an understanding of the trade-offs. And I think the Blue Sky team has done some of that, and I think that they've actually been more open about some of the trade-offs and the challenges that they're facing than many of the others out there. Um, and in fact, I would argue that the you know, some of the folks on Mastodon just kind of hand wave away a lot of the a lot of the trade-offs and the challenges, and that's that's resulted in some some problems there. Um, and at at the other extreme, to some extent, I feel like the um, like like Noster folks are also kind of hand waving away uh, many of these things. And, and Noster's take on it is effectively like. We're totally decentralized. It's not even federated, so there's no like there. There, well, there's no servers that you're sort of submitting to as you are with Mastodon or Blue Sky. But there are relays, which in some ways have the same role, except you're you're it's it's you're not as as tightly wedded to a particular relay as you are with a server with one of the federated services. But there, so there is some discussion about how how moderation will mostly take place either in in relays or clients but there's no there's as far as i can tell to date there's like no real transparency at all you know you can sign up for a bunch of relays but i have no idea what the policies are i don't see anywhere where they're sort of uh, described and there's very little thought that goes into it and there's this sort of weird belief that you know well one that you know there should be almost no moderation at all because they don't necessarily recognize the challenges and the nefarious users. Um, and, and to some extent, like I had a, a, another discussion with someone who was working on a, um, on a social media based on a, you know, sort of blockchain related thing uh, where they seemed surprised at the idea that there might be some content that is just universally bad the, that, you know, that uh, they just had built stuff with the assumption that all content must be available at all times. And when they were, you know, much later in the process presented with the concept of CSAM uh, and how do you deal with that sort of kind of freaked out a little bit because they had not built in any sort of idea on what to do with it. And the best that they could do at that point was not delete the content because of the way the whole blockchain setup was the content was there sort of permanently, but that they could effectively delete any way to then access it uh, was was sort of like the 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 hack to to make it work and and so we sort of see those sort of really much more decentralized systems you know recognizing you know much too late often that they have to sort of hack their way you know backwards into having moderation but again at some point you get to that exact same question which is there is this recognition that like 
you know, CSAM in particular, like has to be dealt with, you know, otherwise you have massive just legal and moral, you know, problems to deal with. Uh, and, but once you've done that, you've now created a system that can be used for everything else. And as you said, you sort of walk down that road, terrorism content, and then spam, and then you start to get to, you know, uh, content about suicide or eating disorders or racism, uh, bigotry, all sorts of questions. And, and sort of everyone has to figure out where to draw the line. And I agree with you and, and sort of why I wrote that, the, the protocols paper in the first place was like, I like the idea of being able to push some part of that power to the users themselves, because in some of these cases, people have different different preferences themselves and different, you know, uh, willingness to accept certain content themselves that, you know, becomes more challenging when it's, when it's a centralized player. So if you can sort of set your own preferences and your own rules or, you know, adopt other, other kinds of rules that make sense, there's, there's value there, but there's always going to be some questions about, you know, what content can't exist at all, uh, and and then who should control it, and then then the pressure games begin on on both sides. So, given all that, and given these discussions, like where where do you think this goes? Like what what you know? And I realize it might be different for the different platforms, but you know what happens next? I mean. We can't have this conversation without sort of talking about the elephant in the room, which is Facebook's impending entrance into <laughs> federated social media, sure. um, which is going to be kind of an interesting experiment in what it looks like to have a company that, for better and for worse, has invested heavily in content moderation and has an enormous base of very active, engaged users enter into a technological space that has been characterized by hobbyist projects and this sort of experimental approach. So I think we're we're kind of at a turning point in what adoption of the technology looks like. And I think Facebook are going to bring to bear in pretty characteristic fashion here a moderation approach that is well established and well resourced and even if it doesn't work perfectly it has a lot of functions that users of Facebook and Instagram quite like. And I think they're going to bring that same approach to their products that are built on ActivityPub, which in a way is a great validation of the whole premise here, right? If if Facebook are selling a product that people want, which is their moderation capability, then people who want a Twitter-like service might gravitate to the option that Facebook are offering while still enabling a certain type of interoperability. So I, I think there's promise there. But the thing that I'm more excited about in a way than what Facebook do here is the increasing recognition that there are decisions that should be left to users themselves. Um, and I think what we've probably seen is the pendulum swinging a little bit too far towards user choice and away from, let's call it good user experience, right? Like what centralized moderation offers is a zero configuration default that is pretty <laughs> right. good for most people most of the time. And all of our debates about content moderation aren't about the 99.9% .9 of moderation decisions that absolutely nobody disagrees with. They're about the 0.1% that happens to be 
polarizing or the subject of some disagreement. And mostly those disagreements are about sex and politics. And so one of the things that we're starting to see is that platforms like Blue Sky and I think Noster actually have, have been talking about some interesting ideas here to make moderation in those areas something that is much more user configurable. Um, there's a proposal that I saw circulating to create this kind of exhaustive taxonomy of adult content <laughs> and use it as an annotation within the data structure of a post on Noster, but I think you could do it on any platform. And the idea is, instead of having Facebook's judgment for what adult content is, you can roll your own version of moderation in the client. And so you could say, you know, breasts, yes, full nudity, no, uh, suggestive twerking, maybe, but put it behind a, a warning <laughs> message, whatever. You can, you can pick your own flavor there. I think that's really promising. And what nobody has done yet is nail the user experience. You right. end up in a situation where you have all of these options, but they're confusing. People don't really know how to use them. People don't want to take the time to do that. And so you need a service that does both. You need something that gives people the convenience and the good user experience of great defaults, along with the configurability to make changes when people see fit. And I think whoever manages to nail that dynamic will really propel this technology forward because it's going gonna, it's gonna to find that balance that none of the centralized services were quite able to reach. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, to some extent, I mean, it'll be interesting to see, I mean, that proposal, which which I've looked at as well, is, is focused on Noster, but it is interesting to see sort of the way that Blue Sky specifically has has developed their like composable moderation system, yep. which is yep. very, very simple at this point, but has that concept sort of built in. And, and it was, but it was interesting to me to see people sort of freak out about it because like, you know, there's literally, I forget exactly what, what it is, what it is in the current implementation, which is very much to sort of like reference. This is, you know, the concept uh, kind of thing where it's like, you get to choose like hate speech or no hate speech or whatever, which just feels icky you know just the fact that you have that that toggle on there sort of already implies like wait a second like why should that even be a toggle for you know many many people for obvious reasons they're just like just don't you know and you get back to this question of like which things should be dealt with at the central yep. central part as opposed as opposed to the edge um but i i do think that like Blue Sky's general model of saying like we're going to have all these knobs and let you handle them as opposed to just a centralized service handling it, I think is actually a really really compelling and interesting thing. Um, you know, and and it it sort of gets to something that uh, you know like Cory Doctorow has talked about this a bunch. Also, I mean, he's talked about his whole like enshittification concept of like I love how, that term by the way. Yes, it's <laughs> such a great great term, and it like caught on so quick, and everybody gets it like really really quickly. But but one of the aspects of enshittification uh, that he talks about, which I think is also really fascinating, is like the the twiddling, and and so in that sense, he's basically saying that it is the large centralized players who are turning the dials without your knowledge or without your control. And they're turning them in ways that enable more enchantification because they're turning them to the benefit of the central provider and often against the interests of the users. Whereas to some extent, this idea, the composable moderation or what you were talking about with the, the Noster proposal is giving those dials to the end users themselves. And then 
you know, allowing them to change things. But again, the, the larger point that you're getting at, which is really important is where are the defaults and, and, you know, who sets the defaults and if the defaults are good, you know, it's, it's nice to have the ability to, to twiddle the knobs yourselves and, and tweak things as you want. But the, you know, the ideal is that for the vast majority of users, the defaults are going to be, are, are going to be the, the, you know, the ones that work and, and most people aren't going to want to mess with it. And, and I, I would argue as well, like just the fact that, um, the, the, the ability, the dials, uh, being there for end users, even if they never use them is actually really important because of that, of the nature of Corey's and shitification where, you know, it prevents the companies from from going down that that path as far as they might otherwise go because if they start to make things worse, you can go in and turn the knobs back. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's really, really important as a concept in in all of this. So even if like some people say, well, no, you know, and I, I've gotten this pushback all the time, like users don't want to go in and, and play with play with stuff. And to me, that's fine. Because just the fact that they have that possibility actually acts as an incentive to prevent really, really bad behavior by the companies. I think that's right. Um, and I, I do think that giving people more of that ability to configure services is, one, prompting a certain type of active engagement with technology that strikes me as being a fundamentally good thing for humans to get in the habit of doing. Um, loosely held opinion, but I, I think being more in control of your devices is broadly a good thing. Um, but I, I do think there's two risks here. The first one is the availability of a control a little bit obscures the fact that there is still structured, centralized <laughs> decision-making underneath that control. Sure. There is an ML model that's deciding whether something is hate speech or nudity. And that model, whether you like it or don't, choose to use it or don't, is instituting a certain set of centralized decision-making logic on content moderation. And certainly you have more choice, but are most people going to roll their own machine learning model to detect something? Maybe. And this idea of being able to subscribe to other people's moderation helps get at that. But there's a lack of transparency and a lack of recourse built into some of that that I think is concerning and replicates some of the very same processes of central control that we were criticizing in the first place when we started talking about federation. <laughs> You're just moving the centralization somewhere else and arguably putting it in a part of the tech stack that's even harder to audit and harder to understand. So that's tricky. But the real issue, and you alluded to this, is the difference between what I call global harms and perspectival harms. This idea of content that is perspectively bad to you, you see it and you don't like it, you, and you, from your perspective, find it undesirable, versus things that are damaging and dangerous even if nobody ever sees them, or even if the victim of that content never sees it. Imagine doxing as a great example of a global harm. Mm -hmm. Even if I never see the post where somebody reveals my address, it's still dangerous for that to be out there. <laughs> yes. And so in that kind of situation, if your answer is, well, you can turn it off, you've kind of ended up with an inappropriate solution to a certain class of harmful content, at which point you are right back where you started with this question of, well, who gets to make the call about what is so dangerous that it can't exist anywhere? 
And there, I just don't think there are great solutions to be found, or at least not easy solutions. There are decisions that I think research can point to as being the right ones, but there is no universally right answer for where you draw that line. And Federation does not help you solve that problem any more effectively. Yeah, no, and I think that is that's a really, really important point. And and to me, like I, I've certainly struggled with this issue, and it's come up in, in lots of other discussions as well. And and part of my answer is that, and and again, it's not a good answer because there is no good answer here. But but part of my thing is like those kinds of situations where you are creating a, a more global harm or, or, you know, a harm that is not prevented by just, you know, individual blocking or muting or whatever is to me, I, I sometimes wonder how much those are actual like trust and safety type issues versus larger societal issues. And I don't, you know, like where you draw that line is also a very fuzzy question. And then what do you do about that is also an even trickier question. Like if it's a societal issue, then so what, <laughs> right? Like what, what, where does that lead? Does that mean that we need governments to outlaw things? Then you run up against all sorts of other questions in the U.S., certainly First Amendment protections on free speech and, and other things as well. Um, but, you know, there is a part of me that thinks like the the – Part of the problem is the expectation that because we have some controls over this stuff, it is now up to trust and safety people, whether at a large company or you know volunteers at a federated service or whatever, to solve these sort of larger societal problems. And you know, we've we've never been able to solve some of these societal problems. And the idea of you know harmful speech that that you know incites violence and that leads to you know uh people being attacked and 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 whatnot we we haven't figured out how to stop that you know in society in general and i don't think that you know anyone's trust and safety team whether it's you know decentralized volunteer individual or big giant centralized company is going to solve those problems. Not to say that we should just like throw up our hands and do nothing, but you know, I'm just trying to put it in perspective as to like, you know, how do you deal with these problems? Like good, good, good question. But, you know, asking random people to, to, you know, turn dials isn't going to solve it either. I think that's exactly right. Like a lot of the issues that we delegate to trust and safety fundamentally boil down to humans being terrible right like you <laughs> you at some point are are dealing with the expression of human awfulness through technology um right i was we were recently at an at an event both of us um where there were discussions of um you know child safety and technology and one of the metaphors that folks at this event kept talking about <laughs> was this idea of um of cyanide in chocolate and they were like well you know if right. somebody's making chocolate they can't put cyanide in the chocolate bar because people would eat the chocolate and they would die and we regulate against that and therefore we need to regulate against this cyanide laced social media that is poisoning children <laughs> i'm pretty sure that's basically how the argument went and yeah and my my concern about that kind of metaphor is information is not metabolized the way food is metabolized. 
if the human body ingests cyanide-laced chocolate, there's a pretty good chance you are going to die because of how cyanide is metabolized in, in the body. Information is processed in the brain in a social fashion. It is not something that has deterministic outcomes. There are perhaps certain predictable outcomes of being exposed to certain information, but We've known for many, many years that people receive and process information differently and that you can't sort of make causal assertions about how information works. And I mention that in this context because sometimes when we talk about social media issues, we talk about them as being about the technology and gloss over the part where it's about the expression of human conduct through the technology. And missing that point can point you in a lot of, I think, pretty misguided directions, can point you towards overly aggressive regulation that tries to take the cyanide out of the chocolate and misses the point that information is not chocolate. Or it can point you in the direction of trying to deploy trust and safety to solve problems that boil down to people being bad to each other. And that's not to say I think we should stop trying, right? Like, I think you're right that right. these are not inherently trust and safety problems, but um, Alex Fierst actually wrote a, a phenomenal piece on TechDirt uh, last week that was looking at how in any organization that has users submitting content, there will be people who encounter trust and safety problems and run away screaming. And then there will be the people who out of some misguided sense of justice or empathy <laughs> are like, yeah, I need to, I need to make this better. There's always going to be those people. We we exist. We are perhaps fools, <laughs> but um, but we will continue to step into the line of fire to to deal with human misbehavior on the internet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, well, I, I think we should wrap this up. But I, I one one final point I wanted to make. Uh, well, we'll see if this is the final point. But I, but like you know, you brought you brought up. Uh, the sort of elephant in the room of, you know, meta, Facebook, Instagram, entering activity pub. And there there are definitely like, it's, it's, there are some really interesting concerns, but to me, I sort of feel like we've seen this before to some extent. And it, it goes back to the Gmail example for me, which is that, you know, you know, 20 years ago, Google entered the email space and, and opened up Gmail and it had a whole bunch of advantages. It had way more storage space than any other service. It had a much nicer UI for people to use, but also one of the key features that it had was a much better spam filter than anyone else had used before. Uh, and, you know, they had sort of cobbled together a few different spam tools that were just really good. And so part of the reason why Gmail succeeded was that it sort of stopped the spam problem. And like for those of us who had email pre-Gmail, like there was a period of time where spam felt like a totally intractable problem and was just completely overwhelming our inboxes to the point that that email was was you know virtually useless at times. And then like Gmail stepped in and and kind of solved that issue. Not entirely, and there are still problems. And and these days, I think Gmail spam filter is is not a, not as effective. I don't want to say as good, but not as yeah, effective. Yeah, it's, as it's it weird how enchitification hit the Gmail spam <laughs> yes. filter too. There's there's something to that. <laughs> yes, something something happened. But you know, but what was interesting to me was like you know Gmail entering the space. 
I thought was actually was really good for email. I mean, one, it sort of made everybody else improve their email things, but also like for most users, for a very large percentage of users, like it, the the sort of trade off of using Google for email and getting that good spam filter and getting that good UI and and the larger storage and the other features was 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 a worthwhile trade off. And I feel that that you know something like that is likely to happen as Meta enters the Fediverse, which is that if they can provide a really good experience, and that's not guaranteed. But if they can provide a really good UI and they can provide really good content moderation, trust and safety for what the majority of users actually feel comfortable with, like maybe that's a good thing. And maybe it instructs other providers within the Fediverse to do better and to have a better setup. And maybe we start to see some hybrid things where just like you can, if you want, to, you can send your email through Gmail and then use a different client to access it. Uh, you know, maybe we're going to start to see certain content go through the through, you know, Meta's content moderation efforts and then reach other parts of the Fediverse. I don't know if that's good or bad, but but we're, we're opening up these sort of interesting models that you know set up some some different possibilities. And I actually think. I, you know, I understand why there are a lot of people, especially in the Fediverse, who are scared to death and are just like, as soon as Meta enters the Fediverse, like we should block their servers and and whatnot. But I actually think, in general, it it could be a really, really useful, uh, you know, useful player in that space to 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 sort of do what Gmail did to 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 the email space. I mean, I think that's exactly the right analogy. And I've actually written a a bit about this in an upcoming piece that is about how the choice is not really whether or not to do this type of centralized moderation. It's what type of centralization you want and what types of governance are better or worse. People are going to demand a good experience the same way that they did with anti-spam and email when Gmail came out. I'm fairly strongly opinionated that creating another part of the internet that is governed by Facebook's rules in accordance (laughs) with how Facebook operates is not the best thing for the overall health of the internet. Like, this isn't a statement about Facebook being good or bad, although I have an opinion there. It's (laughs) more a question of whether we want the internet to be more homogenous or less. And I think more diversity on the internet is a good thing. And so I don't think blocking Facebook's entrance into the Fediverse is the right answer here. I would I would instead say this should be seen as a positive provocation, as a call to action that we need to build something that is not Facebook and does not default right. to operating on Facebook's terms, but that meets the demand that consumers have that drew them to Facebook in the first place. Recognize that there's something people wanted from Facebook, something that they got there that they couldn't get anywhere else same as Gmail. And then think about how to build that technology in a way that is perhaps better governed, more transparent, more accessible, more representative of community values. I think there's ways to do it better, but you're not going to get there if you just stick your head in the sand and say, Facebook bad, <laughs> the colonizers are here. Like that, that's not a, I don't think that's a constructive solution. And certainly it didn't stop anybody from using Gmail. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think one sort of interesting difference is is hopefully people are more, you know, more willing to recognize that, and and you know, I think people are thinking about it more 
in, in this case. And, 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 you know, because in, in 2003, I don't think there was as much concern about Google as today there is concern about Facebook. So hopefully, hopefully we get to that kind of result. Anyways, this was a great discussion. We could obviously continue and go on a whole bunch of other things. You know, as we started this discussion, I, I had a list of questions. I don't think we got to any of them just because <laughs> I was kind of going where the discussion was going. But obviously, really, really interesting stuff and uh, in a in a space that is rapidly changing. Um, but uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time and having this discussion. And I know that, that you have a bunch of things that you've been writing on this um, I don't know if anything's out yet or stuff is all coming out soon or should be out should by be uh, by the end of June. So the the first big piece that I've been working on um, with a co-author at the Carnegie Endowment um, is a state assessment of security problems in the Fediverse. Um, and let's just say the state leaves something to be desired. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure the something is content moderation. Um, but um all that and more coming soon. The paper should be out as part of the Atlantic Council Task Force for a Trustworthy Future Web's initial report. Um, and so that should be out in just a couple of weeks. Yeah, that is coming out soon um, and should be really interesting to see. Uh, and there'll be lots of fun stuff associated with that. We're working on a project that is we're going to be announcing soon. So stay tuned and, and, uh, and look for that as well. But there'll be a lot of fun things coming out with that. Uh, and, uh, I think that's it. Thank you again for, for taking the time. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week.